What I have a hard time with now in politics is the hate. I'm human. I have a hard time loving someone who is espousing hate. And I know if I don't, I'm just going to amplify the hate, but it's really hard. There are some beliefs that just cannot be shaken, but for the most part, if you know, just conversations, just understanding, we can all just come together. Yeah, I, I feel like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, awesome to have a difference of opinion. I feel like a lot of people, uh, they just want to be surrounded by the same ideas. I feel like it's great to not be in such a tunnel vision kind of perspective of life. Yeah, of course. For example, in my couple, we are disagree on political point, but uh, we don't care about it. How do you think that then plays out in like France for you, like if it's not a point of contention? It's not a big deal. We'll discuss, we'll uh, share our points, and with all the people that we stayed close-minded, and when you are close-minded in general, it ends by, by, argue, by argument. We live in a state that many of whom think differently than us, and we have to love them unconditionally or else we're hypocritical in, in what we believe. Do you think it is possible to disagree politically and still love unconditionally? Oh, well, automatically off the jump for me, no, because if you disagree on like someone's right to exist or someone's right to have access to what you have access to, I just can't have you in my life. I personally do have family members that like view different like things politically, but like you kind of have to coexist with them because there is like a family connection. So it's a tough question for sure. <laughs>Good morning, Willow Creek. Thank you so much for including me in this series and inviting me into your church. I absolutely love Willow Creek. Um, I could spend 35 minutes just talking about the difference that this church has made in my life and the impact you've had on our churches um, back in Atlanta, but that's not what I have been invited to do. I wanna thank Dave for initiating this invitation. Again, I, I so badly wanted to be here in person. Um, there is one big advantage for me not being there in person, and that is that no one has to take me out to lunch after church. Uh, of course, the other reason I'm super excited about this and the reason I agreed to participate is I love this series. I love the title of the series, Love Like Jesus, and I especially love my part of this series. Now, if you're new to Willow or this is the first time you've been back in a long time, or maybe somebody invited you today for a variety of reasons, you're sort of coming into the middle of the movie, um, but this is a six-part series, and we're talking about the interchange and the intersection of church and culture, and we have a key passage of Scripture that kind of holds the series together. It's from the Old Testament. It's Micah 6, 8. And even if you're not a person of faith, some of these words are gonna be familiar to you. In fact, you may not even have known that they, they came out of the Bible. So here's what the prophet writes. He writes this. He says, he, talking about God, has shown you, O mortal, sounds a little bit like Gandalf, O mortal, what is good. So God has shown us what is good. We all know the difference between right and wrong. And then he asks this, very pertinent question. And what does the Lord require of you? And what does the Lord require of me? And then he answers the question. And this is the part that's perhaps familiar to you. To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Now, apparently, apparently, a manuscript was discovered recently with a little bit different version of this text. And from what I understand, here's how this um, recently discovered manuscript reads. The first part is the same, but the second part changes a little bit. It reads like this, to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God, except, except when it comes to politics. 
then you can act just like, you can act and react just like everybody else. Now, I've not actually seen a copy of this, but clearly it exists somewhere. Now, in the spring of 2021, spring of 2021, I'm coming out of COVID again and emerging from that um, contentious political cycle that we came out of. Um, I was so disappointed in and honestly um, embarrassed by the behavior and language of some high profile pastors, preachers, um, broadcasters and podcasters, nonprofit leaders, um, as well as some Christians who politicize their churches and politicize their ministries. And by politicize, I mean, they lined up with the Republican party or they lined up with the Democratic Party and they politicized their churches um, and their ministries. Um, you, you, you saw this, you, you experienced this name calling and demonizing the other party, people by name. It was like it was a new spiritual discipline. It's like it became a, a virtue. And granted, political um, polarization has been a part of our, our country forever. It's certainly been a political reality for decades. But this time it was different, wasn't it? It felt different. This time, this time uh, the messy, but oftentimes productive middle, the middle ground, the middle posture all but disappeared. And we all felt pressured to move either further right or further left or be left behind. And one thing Christians don't wanna be is left behind. <laughs> Churches and church leaders took their cues, it seemed, from culture. Honestly, the way I summarize this for our local churches, it's as if people forgot what it means to be Christians. It's as if Christians forgot what it means to be Christians. It's as if pastors forgot what it meant to be Christian. And, and then the pastors like Dave and like me, who refused to take a side, refused to take a political stand, we were, we were criticized for refusing to take a stand. But the truth is, we were taking a stand. We were taking a stand against politicizing the ecclesia of Jesus, the movement of Jesus, the church. We were standing for the posture and the tone and the approach prescribed to us by our King. Now, here's the thing, and I tell folks in our church this all the time. You get to decide whether or not you wanna follow Jesus. But once you decide to follow Jesus, you do not get to decide and I do not get to decide what it looks like, acts like, and most importantly, we don't get to decide what it reacts like because Jesus prescribed that to us. The other problem with politicizing a local church is essentially those of us who were against it, we were taking a stand against alienating half the people in our community and half the people in the nation. Because once a church sides with a political party, you've essentially sent a message to the other half of the community, which is basically you are not welcome here. Now, um, as you know, um, this is particularly challenging for churches like Willow and, and like our churches because we're not single site churches. You, you have campuses all over the city. So no surprise, politically, we don't all see things the same way and that's okay. In fact, I'm gonna try to convince you it's actually an advantage. It's okay because, and we all know this, disagreement, disagreement whether it's in a church, in a business, at home, disagreement is unavoidable. But, and here's where the tension is. Here's the tension we live in, worship with, and actually serve in as a group of local churches. The tension is this, division, division is a choice. Disagreement, unavoidable. Division is always a choice. And here's why this is a big deal. Enemy number one, enemy number one of the church is not the Democrats. Enemy number one of the church is not Republicans. Enemy number one of the church 
is division. And the reason I can say that with confidence is because unity, unity is the one thing Jesus prayed for when Jesus prayed for Willow Creek Church. It's the one thing he prayed for when he prayed for our church. In John 17, Jesus prayed for the future church. Some of you are familiar with this passage. And he said, Father, the one thing I'm most concerned about, I pray that they would be one and read it in context, one in purpose as we are one in purpose. And then he said this, if the church is one in purpose, then the world will know, Jesus said, that you sent me. The number one enemy of the church is division. Besides, the tension created by our disagreement, as I said a minute ago, the the, the tension created by the fact that we don't all see the world the same way is actually to our political advantage. And here's why I say that. Because disagreement and the tension created around disagreement, disagreement is where we learn. Disagreement is where we grow. And disagreement is where we say, oh. Disagreement is where we gain empathy. It's where we say, oh, I I always assumed, uh, oh, I always thought, oh, I always believed. Disagreement is where we gain empathy. Disagreement is where we learn to love. Believe it or not, political disagreement, you may not agree with this, but believe it or not, political disagreement is usually fueled by divergent life experiences, not low IQ. When, when we make the mistake, when we make the mistake of equating someone's differing political views, when they disagree with, with the, they have differing political views from us, when we equate that to somebody's low IQ or even a lack of character, do you know what we're doing? We are doing unto others precisely what we don't want others to do unto us. We're sizing people up and we're writing them off. We're stereotyping. But mature, curious people don't go there. And Jesus followers don't go there either because Jesus didn't go there. In fact, we have a mandate that prohibits us from going there. Jesus knew command. On the night of his, that, the night he would be arrested, as you know, he gathered with his disciples, his apostles for Passover. And during that Passover meal, he said, gentlemen, I'm gonna give you a new command. And they thought, we don't need any new commands. We, we have a difficult time keeping the ones we already have. And they would discover later that Jesus wasn't giving them an additional command. He was giving them a new command that would supersede and replace all the other commands. And this new covenant command were to be the marching orders and his marching orders would prohibit them and prohibit us from sizing each other up and writing each other off. He said, I'm giving you a new command and here's what it is. You are to love one another. You are to love one another, even if you don't agree with one another. And if you wanna know what Jesus brand of love looks like, acts like, and reacts like, you simply follow Jesus through the gospels. And it's not soft, And it's not passive. In fact, the next day after he gave them this new command, the next day he put on a demonstration of love that would take his breath away and it would take your sin away and it would take my sin away. He disagreed, think about this. In Jesus' lifetime, he disagreed with every single person he encountered about most things, but he leaned in and he loved and he invited us to follow him, which means apparently it is possible to disagree politically and yet love one another unconditionally. But it's not just a possibility. Jesus didn't leave this in the realm of potential impossibility. We are, as Jesus followers, we are required to love one another, even when 
we disagree. In fact, it's the law of Christ. This is what Paul would refer later to, to, to later as the law of Christ, the single law of Christ. To love one another, Jesus says, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And the interesting thing is, remember, when Jesus said this, he's sitting in a room with his apostles. He hasn't been arrested yet. He's not been crucified yet. And yet he says, even from that vantage point, I want you to love each other the way that I loved you. And think about it, he could have gone around the room. Matthew, you remember when we met? Matthew would say, of course I do. Matthew, do you remember what you were doing when we first met? Yeah, I, I, I was a traitor to my nation. I was an embarrassment to my people. I was alienated from God. And Matthew, do you remember what I said to you when I met you? Yes, Rabbi, you invited me to follow you. And generally speaking, people didn't want me to be following them. And then Jesus would have said, Matthew, I want you to extend that same grace and mercy and love to every single person you meet for the rest of your life. And he could have had a conversation with every single person around that room. And he could have a similar conversation with me. And he could have a similar, similar conversation with you. He could single all of us out and say, I want you to love the people around you the way that I have loved you. You see, the, the difficult truth for us as we think about the political division and the ramifications of being around people or asked to love people who disagree with us politically or in any arena of life is this, that God loves us. God loves us in spite of our misinformed, experience-based, ever-evolving views. And he expects me to do the same for you. And he expects you to do the same. In fact, he's called you, requires you to do the same for me, for me, but not because it's the nice thing to do. It is the mission of the church. It is mission critical. You remember, I'm sure most of you remember how this passage ends up. He says, love one another as I've loved you, so you must love one another by this, this being this unique brand of Jesus love, this love regardless. By this, you remember this part, everyone will know. This is the brand, this is the litmus test. This is how people know. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And this is why disagreement, even political disagreement is to our advantage as a group of local churches. Think about it. The more we disagree, the more notable, noticeable and noteworthy our love and lives become. The fact that we, the fact that just like us, the fact that you are geographically dispersed, the fact that you are politically diverse, means that you have a unique opportunity compared to a single site, single community church. In fact, the more politically diverse we are, the more politically diverse we are, the harder it will be for us to love one another. And thus, and this is Jesus' point, the brighter our light collectively will shine. I mean, I mean, come on. Getting along with people who are just like you, that is not amazing. Nobody ever gets credit for that. I mean, Sheila is so amazing. She loves all of her friends. It's amazing, right? You don't get credit. I don't get credit for loving people who are like me. In fact, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, hey, you are to welcome people who are unlike you. That's how you look like me. But getting along with people who are just like you isn't amazing. It's expected. But loving, serving, worshiping with, serving alongside the people who aren't like you, who don't share your view, that's amazing. That's noticeable, that is noteworthy, that is the gospel. In fact, the apostle Paul, he summed it up this way. He said to 
believers. He said, look, I want you to carry each other's burdens. Well, Paul, why do I need to carry his burden? Why do I need to carry her burden? We have very little in common. In fact, I don't even like her and I don't think she likes me. Because when I carry, when I choose to carry your burden, you know what it requires of me? To carry your burden requires me to move in your direction. And if you choose to carry my burden, you have to move in mine. And when that happens, you'll have a better understanding of why I stand where I do. And I'll have a better understanding of why you stand where you do. But more importantly, here's how Paul wraps this up. More importantly, this, he says, in this way, you will fulfill, and here it is again, the law of Christ. The law of Christ is to love as he loved. When you choose to carry someone's burden, regardless of your differences, when you choose to carry someone's burdens, regardless of your differences, you are fulfilling the law of Christ. When we choose to carry someone's burdens, what divides us, this is so powerful. What happens, you've experienced this, it diminishes. But what unites us, what unites us surfaces. It's this experience that makes the church amazing. It's this experience that causes the church to shine. This is the reason our political diversity is to our advantage. In some ways it is mission critical. It may be our greatest opportunity. It may be our greatest evangelistic opportunity in this season of what's happening in our nation. When we carry one another's burdens, we fear the other people less. We understand more. Sometimes we change. I mean, think about it. This is how the church began. I mean, <laughs> this is how the world changed. In fact, a lot of you know enough church history to know this. If the people who came before us in the first century were able to find common ground at the cross, we have no excuse. I mean, think about it, in a culture that was divided by class, by citizenship, by who's related to who, by what region of the world you came from, where people actually purchased their way up the social ladder, the ecclesia of Jesus, the church of Jesus was so disturbing. It was so unsettling because classes of people, we can't even imagine this, classes of people whose circles rarely overlapped came together voluntarily to worship their resurrected savior. We, we can't even begin to imagine how countercultural the following sounded to Gentile Christians. When the apostle Paul wrote these words and when it was read in the local churches, I mean, we, again, we can't even imagine the emotion this must have elicited. The apostle Paul writes this, he says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, pause, okay, I mean, in our culture, you know, us Gentiles and the Jewish friends of ours and neighbors and, you know, people we know, we all mix. It's not a big deal. In the first century, it's like, this is a showstopper. The, the gap between Jew and Gentile culturally and morally and ethically was so wide, this was unimaginable. Paul says, no, something new has happened. Someone new has come and that gap has closed. There is no Difference. Now, this was such a big deal. You may know this. This was such a big deal. It would take over 20 years after the resurrection, 20 years after the resurrection, the church finally figured out a way forward for Gentiles and Jews to come together. But it took 20 years after the resurrection. This gap was so wide, but they figured it out because they were committed to the life and the teaching of Jesus. But it took them another 20 years. He goes on, he says, not only no, neither Jew nor Gentile, but neither slave nor free, to which, you know, the audience is like, okay, time out once, once again. 
Wait, Paul, it's self-evident. Don't you know this, Paul? It's self-evident that some people were born to rule and other people were born to be ruled over. I mean, it's self-evident. Just look at how the world works, Paul. There are some people who were born to be owned and there were some people who were born to be owners. You're not trying to tell me that slaves and slave owners are equal in the sight of God. If that were to catch on, it would signal the end of slavery. And in fact, it did. And then he takes it a step further. This is so offensive to us because we, again, it seems so self-evident to us, but in the first century, this was anything but self-evident. In fact, what he says next is self-evident to us because of the teaching of Jesus. He says this, nor, nor is there male. And females, like, wait, hang on, Jews and Gentiles, like getting slaves and free, I, I, I'm still not sure about. But Paul, are you telling me there's no distinction, distinction between the value of a man and the value of a woman that in God's eyes, they are equal? Paul, if the women ever hear about this, and they did, and women flocked to the teaching of Jesus, women were drawn to the church. In fact, in, in my church, churches, I say this all the time. So I'm the guest speaker, so take this you know, as you will. But I say in our churches all the time, ladies, regardless of your religious affiliation, regardless of whether or not you're a person of faith, every woman should have an I love Jesus bumper sticker on whatever she drives or however she travels because of what Jesus did for the dignity of women. He sowed seeds, it took too long for them to finally bear fruit, but he sowed the seeds that raised the value and the dignity of women all over the world. And what is self-evident to us about the equality between men and women was not self-evident in the first, second or third or century or the centuries to follow, but it was the teaching of Jesus and the principle of, of mutual submission introduced by the apostle Paul that finally brought us to the place that we are today. But when Paul first wrote this and it was read in the church, they thought if the women hear about this, imagine what's gonna happen. He wraps it up with this. He says, for, for you are all slaves and free, Jews and Gentiles, men and women, you are all one. That was the answer to Jesus' prayer. In John 17, you are all one in Christ Jesus. There is no distinction in the kingdom of God. There's equal dignity, equal worth, equal value. This was so disruptive. If this caught on, if this caught on, the fabric of the entire empire would unravel. And indeed, it caught on as Jesus predicted it would. And indeed the empire unraveled. The culturally disruptive, the culturally disruptive unity of the first century church shocked the world, but the message of the church and their unity ultimately changed it. So here's the invitation for those of us who claim to be Jesus followers. Let's be amazing. Let's, let's just do what the early church did, slave and free, male and female, Democrat and Republican. Let's, let's just decide, regardless of our political views, regardless of how strong we, strongly we hold some of those views, and I understand this, okay? I'm not naive. You, there are things that you can't imagine a Christian voting for that you know some Christians and they vote for that. You, you can't imagine how a Christian could vote for him or vote for her, but you run into Christians who vote for him or vote for her. Granted, I mean, the division is wide. And you have, you're a reasonable person and you have reasoned your way into your political view. But I say, let's do what the church did anyway. Slave and free, male and female, Jew and Gentile, Democrat 
and Republican. Let's be Christian. Let's, let's be partisans of a king, a, a king who came to establish an upside down, others first, back of the line kingdom. A way of life, not just a way of belief, a way of life fueled and informed by a single forever relevant command, a command that has the potential to change everything in spite of how things change, to love, to love as he loved us. This simple idea, this simple command is the bridge between our differences. This single command is the bridge between our disagreements. This is important. This is the bridge between our disagreement over solutions. Agreement over solutions is not what binds us together. In fact, solutions to problems in our country and solutions to problems in our community will always be a source of contention, always, and that's okay. Because Jesus did not command us to agree with one another. He commanded us to love one another, which means as hard as it is to believe, we can disagree politically and we can love unconditionally. In fact, that tone, that approach, that posture will make our nation, will make our community a better and safer and more prosperous nation and a more prosperous community. But that's not why we do it. The reason we do it is because we are not Republicans. We are not Democrats. We are partisans of a king. We have pledged our allegiance to a better king who came to make this world a better place for God so loved the world that he moved in our direction. So here's the application. The next time that you find yourself serving alongside of, the next time you find yourself in a small group with someone who holds a different view, a different political view, and they're kind of doing their thing and you're kind of getting all churned up on the inside or you've expressed your view and you can see the look of disappointment on their face. Everybody just needs to stop and say this. You know what? I love my church. I love my church. Here we are doing what the first century did. We do not agree. We do not agree on solutions. We don't even agree on approaches. And because of that, look how bright our light will shine because we will in fact love one another and we will not allow our differences over solutions to divide us because enemy number one of the local church is disunity. So it's pretty simple. Let's just be quick to listen, slow to speak. Um, Let's not keep our distance. Let's be kind and yet willing to call out unkindness when we hear and see unkindness. Let's be honest and yet willing to call out dishonesty when it undermines somebody's dignity. Let's live and love and lead in such a way that we, the ecclesia of Jesus, regains the moral high ground in our nation. And maybe eventually the church once again becomes the conscience of the nation. Let's, let's do what's just and not what we can justify. Let's do what's responsible and not what's permissible. And let's do what's moral and not simply what's modeled for us. And let's not settle for being law abiding citizens or even patriotic Americans. Let's be better than that. Let's be Jesus followers. Let's, in the words of the apostle Paul, let's do everything without grumbling or arguing. And honestly, when I read that, I think, but Paul, that's the American way. We grumble and argue about everything. If we have to give up grumbling and arguing, what are we gonna do, right? Paul says this, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that we, 
and our generation may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. How many times have you complained about our culture? How many times have you complained about what's going on in this generation? The apostle Paul would say, yeah, us too. But the way forward is not to grumble and to argue and complain. And the way forward is not to allow yourself to be divided. He says the way forward is to live in such a way. Well, here's the result. He says this, if you'll do this, he says, then we, the church, will shine among them like stars in the sky. That's the win. That's the win for the church. That's the win for your church and our church. And honestly, that's the win for the nation. And if Jesus was correct, and I think Jesus is always correct. If Jesus was correct, that's what's gonna be celebrated when the clock runs out and the game finally comes to an end. So Willow Creek, let's do this. Let's be amazing. Let's be the church. Let's be Christian. Let's love like Jesus. I'd love to pray for us. Heavenly Father, easier said than done. Heavenly Father, there are some of us today, when we think about the views of some of our brothers and sisters, it makes our stomachs turn. We cannot imagine how they could be Christian and believe what they believe, vote for who they vote for. Father, would you give us the wisdom to see this the way you see it? Would you give us the ability to see beyond our political persuasions and that we would find the common ground of the cross and there come together in the messy, messy, productive middle and come up with real world solutions for the people who are hurting, who haven't heard the gospel, who don't understand how the love of Jesus intersects with their daily lives. But give us eyes to see and give us ears to hear and then give us the courage to step into that place and be amazing to be the church and to in fact love like you loved us. And I pray all of that in the matchless name of Jesus, amen. Thank you once again for allowing me to be a part of your church and a part of this series.